0: For most top draw physicists and mathematicians, popularisation is low down on their list of priorities. What matters most to them is research, developing new ideas. But the Dutch mathematical physicist Robert de Graaf is a striking exception. Now in his late 50s, he's done a lot to push the boundaries of his subject, and is also a supremely effective populariser. In his native Netherlands, he's a well-known television presenter, often recognised by passers-by in the streets. My name is Graham Farmelow, author of The Universe Speaks in Numbers, and I spoke to Digraph last summer in Princeton, where he's director of the Institute for Advanced Study. A mecca for scholars, not least in mathematics and physics, it was Einstein's academic home for the last 22 years of his life. Sitting on the sofa in Digraph’s office last summer, I asked him what drew him to fundamental physics and mathematics and whether he's happy with the direction his subject is taking today. And what does he believe will be the most enduring achievements of the past generation of mathematical physicists, who've had to work mainly on developing ideas with precious few clues from experiments designed to probe the inner workings of atoms? But first, I wanted to ask him about his career. His research supervisor, the great theoretician Gerhard de Hooft, had told me that Digraph once dropped out of his physics courses and began to study art before returning to physics. Is that true? I asked Degeroff.
1: Yeah, I had kind of a complicated trajectory. I mean, at a very young age, I was fascinated by physics and I was very excited to study physics at university. But then at some point, the motivation uh, evaporated and I started painting and then I felt uh, my real call in life was to become a painter and I applied to art school and was very happy in art school, but actually... While I was in art school, in some sense, the embers started to burn again, and I became, again, very interested in physics. And so, in the end, I went back. But I often tell that, you know, this looks like a very complicated motion, the zigzag motion. But for me, in some sense, this was the fastest route towards research. Because I would say, in art school, I was really confronted with the question, what does it mean to do original work? So um, I always feel it's kind of a, you know, the, the two fields are perhaps closer connected than you might think. Because often, you know, we, when we look at physics or math or art, we look at this shiny outside. You know, we look at finished artworks. We look at famous theorems of famous results in, in science. But actually on the inside, of course, there's a lot of uh, angst and and trial and error and you have to kind of count on things like emotion Mm -hmm. and
0: passion and which in some sense are very similar. So when you were becoming a distinguished mathematical physicist, was the need to be original particularly important to you?
1: Now one thing you learn in art school, that you have to kind of embrace the material. Uh, like kitsch art is often when you try to make something, say, out of wood, which doesn't want to be made out of wood. And I think in physics too and math, it's very important that you embrace the material, this to get to know physics, get to know logic and make it your own. It's not so much being original in having an original thought, because that's very, very difficult, but being original in developing an original take on even what's known. And that's kind of building it from scratch. Like if you're a good cook, you can build a dish from scratch. And I think if you're a good physicist or a good mathematician, you should be able to do also basically starting with the
0: raw ingredients
1: to build your theorems or
0: your insights. So Dijkraaf spent a lot of his time as a student thinking about art, giving scarcely a thought for equations and physical principles. What, I asked him, attracted him back to fundamental physics?
1: I think for me, from the very beginning, the most attractive element of physics is that you can kind of capture the world in a formula, in an equation. It's like the most condensed, the most pure, the most real way to express reality. So I think it's a great miracle and a gift that this actually can be done. And, of course, it was great insights of people like Newton that actually, you know, there are laws of nature and that you can apply mathematics to understand the world around you. But I think that's such a kind of seducive thought that that actually can be done. And I think, you know, many people who are active in this field, their kind of measure of pleasure in the field or, or, or reward is a, essentially the ratio of... Uh, the number of things you explain divided by the length of the equation. So having a very short equation describing a large chunk of the universe,
0: I think, gives you the ultimate reward. But would you have considered, say, going into something like the physics of of solids, for example, or something more practically minded? Would that have uh, been to you? No, I think
1: actually now it might, because I'm a more sensible person, (laughs) and I can see actually that these divisions aren't that strict. But I must say, when I was a young physicist, I feel you're like, just like an object can resonate with a certain tone. And if you shift the tone, the frequency a little bit, it doesn't. Breaking a glass by singing at the right pitch. uh, I feel it's like that. You're like a tuning fork that only is vibrating with one very specific vibe. Which for me was equations, and
0: beautiful equations, that is equations that in some sense uh, are alive. So in the latter part of your career, you've become a a prominent member of the, if I may say, great and the good. I'm sorry to insult you like that. Uh, But give us a snapshot of what you did when you were a full-time mathematical physicist. And and you obviously enjoyed it, I take it what you're saying here. What kind of thing were you working on there?
1: Well, I think I've always been fascinated by the interface of physics and mathematics. And for me, this kind of uh, runs in two directions. I think, you know, there is the... Clearly, uh, I always felt that in order to understand nature, math is the right language. But, you know, we speak a very primitive dialect of that natural language. And we have to develop more elaborate syntax, perhaps new words, um, new concepts. So I always like to see whether you know, physics can benefit by applying more advanced mm-hmm. math. On the other end, I think actually physics and science in general... Is a terrific motivation for to develop new mathematics. So, I always feels this is kind of an interesting dialogue between physics and math. And I like to kind of have this dialogue with myself. I think mm. I'm really half half of me feels like a mathematician, and I can like totally lose myself in in studying very abstract mathematics. But then there is another half that says, "Wait a moment! Now you want to be kind of tethered to reality or mm. something." Not so much because I want to be practical. But I feel that nature might have an infinite wisdom in terms of the kind of mathematics that's out there. So in my career, I uh, always kind of ventured into the more mathematical areas of string theory, of understanding quantum gravity. I worked a lot on understanding uh, black holes, certain kind of quantum field theories, like supersymmetric quantum field theories, where these mathematical techniques can be easily applied. And I must say, this kind of pathway if I think about it as an investment, because you invest mm. in some sense mm. your life mm. in it, has given the most rewarding and continuous rate of return. It's remarkable, uh, even over the short period that I have watched it, sort a of few decades, how this has blossomed and how, you know, in some sense, the, both the mathematics and the physics has grown. So it's, it's an incredible fruitful deal.
0: I wanted to challenge the graph on that. No one could deny the achievement of the standard model of subatomic particles and the forces that shape the structures of atoms. Experimenters have checked the theory thoroughly and it's come through with flying colours. But many of the developments in theoretical physics from the late 1970s that he praises haven't made close connection with experiment, even if they've led to deep connections with mathematics. So why is he so positive about these theoretical advances before nature has given them the thumbs up?
1: Well, I think, you know, in some sense, what we see, and I think, is not so much the application of these kind of advanced mathematical ideas Mm -hmm. to one particular problem, which I think how it started as finding kind of a grand, unified or fundamental theory of nature. In fact, I think what's kind of happening is that we see a Actually, this might have been my dream too, but I think that's not how it has been playing out. I think what I've seen being played out over the last few decades is, I would say, kind of a grand unification of theoretical physics, that is to say the ideas. And that was already kind of present, like in the 1970s, where some fundamental ideas about quantum field theory, about renormalization, were not only being applied fundamental physics. It could be more applied physics uh, in condensed matter physics, in information theory, in gravity. And what we have seen is that kind of all these fields are kind of now merged together. And I would say kind of the mathematical tools are being applied across the full breadth of theoretical physics. So if we want to point to successes, it's more, perhaps more difficult in the sense that you can't kind of point one thing. But I would say you can point to many people who are studying you know, very practical things like you know, logical isolators or mm-hmm. something, or uh, certain areas or other condensed metaphysics are using incredibly refined mathematics mm-hmm. that found its origin in completely different areas of physics. So I would say, I think that that is a very positive thing. You know, whether we have a hit on the ultimate description of nature i think we might be very far away from that but what we did learn is that reality is being described Mm -hmm. by a set of physical theories that actually need a certain mathematical sophistication Mm -hmm. to really be understood so there are Nobel prizes that have been awarded so to say in the last few decades and in certain areas which are
0: very mathematical but I, I think I'm ready to say none of those Nobel prizes, in particular, yeah, yeah. have been awarded when there's not been clear experimental evidence. Of course, I mean, there Haw- is Hawking, famously. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so
1: of course we we need that. But and always, in some sense, you know, we are, have to point to things which, in some sense, are kind of you would almost say kind of say say second order effects. For instance, developments in string theory led to studying very abstract theories, mm-hmm. sometimes in completely different dimensions and in three dimensions that we live but then these ideas found their way in other areas of physics where they're being applied and measured and so I'm kind of surprised that some of my own work like we did work with Edward Witten in the late 1980s where we were almost ashamed to mention the real mathematical theory was like in a buried in a footnote And now, 30 years later, there are condensed metaphysicists who actually come to me and they want to know all the details about this. And 30 years ago, I wouldn't even dare to use the word. And now it's common practice in another area of physics. So I find actually that's one of the most positive developments of uh, intellectual developments in theoretical physics, is that all these different fields, all these different kind of uh, parts of physics... Mm -hmm are now in uh, some sense in a very open communication and are sharing some of these mathematical ideas.
0: I noticed that while Digraph was praising the achievements of theoreticians, he hadn't mentioned the absence, so far at least, of experimental evidence that the latest advances actually describe the real world. Does he agree that when you get right down to it, experiments decide whether the theories are on the right lines?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think you know, to to some extent. So um, I think there are certain great developments like the developments in quantum mechanics Mm. and quantum field theory and particle physics, where no amount of uh, introspection would have led us to develop quantum mechanics. On the other hand, we should be aware that the number of theoretical philosophical questions being raised by these experiments is huge, and that we can still chewing, so to say, on what it exactly means. Of course, Einstein's development of general relativity is in many ways an example of the opposite nature, where in some sense he was far, far ahead of experiments, and that the full consequences of the theory took a hundred years of a lot of technical development, technological development, too. He did, use some, he did use some input in that. Yes, yeah, uh, there's some it, input, it, but it, I yeah, would say, yeah. you know, in some sense, if you see things like black holes yeah. or gravitational waves mm-hmm. or the Big Bang, so you could easily have imagined that these were forced upon us, mm-hmm. that you know we by measurements, we see, well, there is this bizarre object in nature, a black hole, nobody could have thought about that mm-hmm. such a thing would exist. It actually existed on paper. Almost a hundred years earlier. So there are examples where theory is running ahead, and you know, that's that's just a fact of life. And clearly, I think in particle physics, everybody will agree that theory is kind of many many miles ahead. But um, that's just you know what we have to do. We will will, you know, in some sense the our thinking moves at the speed of thought, which is uh, much faster than the, the, the speed in which we build experiments, mm. particular large particle accelerators.
0: Mm-hmm. It was striking to me that Digraph didn't seem to be more disappointed that the detectors at the Large Hadron Collider haven't been teeming with newly discovered particles. Was he happy to see theoreticians today working on speculative ideas, often paying little or no heed to the findings of experimenters? Now,
1: th- everybody would agree it would be wonderful. But if you take a broad view of the development of physics, I think actually even, say, in the last 10 years, you know, with the Higgs particle, with gravitational waves, with everything that we find in cosmology, there is quite a lot of interesting experimental results that's mm-hmm. motivating us. Perhaps also, I think, you know, the, there's a certain realism that certainly in particle physics that you have to embrace in the sense, you know, it's very unlikely that we can walk so to say, all the way down to the smaller scales mm. at once. Mm. You know, that's a, a long-term effort. But perhaps it's the uh, the other half in me, the mathematician, that uh, is kind of just mm. enjoying the intellectual development. Yeah. But I think, you know, this is famous saying, nothing as practical as a good theory. Uh, I, I think actually that's, uh, I'm actually convinced about that. Mm. I think, you know, we have seen many, many times in theoretical physics that ideas were developed in one area, and then found their application in Mm. another. The last thing we do need is a thought police that stops us kind of thinking deeply, even about what's out here. Mm. So I think there's also kind of a misunderstanding in general that people think physics is about explaining the latest experimental discovery, the latest kind of unknown thing, but actually we are surrounded with things we do not understand. Mm. Uh, I often like to give the example, if you would go back a 100 years, you you would look around what you see. And you could ask, a child could ask so many questions, you know, why is grass green? Why is the sky blue? Why does the sun shine? These were all questions that couldn't be understood before the advent of quantum mechanics and nuclear physics. Mm. So we are much more surrounded by deep questions that, there's lots of experimental evidence that the grass is green and the sky is blue Mm -hmm. but we need a theoretical development to understand this and i think in the same way there are tremendous questions about the nature of space and time and gravity and quantum mechanics that we want to think about deeply and that not will not be set straight by a single experiment they also need deep original thinking
0: and you're not concerned that if you're lucky enough to have great-great-grandchildren that they might, yeah. be, they might not have experimental input because it would just be too expensive, for example? No,
1: I think actually, uh, in some sense, the rate of experimental, interesting experimental returns, I think, is typically pretty constant. There's lots of stuff uh, happening. In some sense, the challenges are, of course, now by definition, experiment always digs deeper, goes further, it mm-hmm. tries to measure something that wasn't measurable mm-hmm. before. But again, there, I think it's very good to take the long-term view. And again, going back to Einstein, when he developed his theory of relativity, there were many effects that he himself thought they would never be measurable because mm. it was unimaginable in the year 1915 to see the technology that now, for instance, is used in LIGO to detect mm. gravitational mm-hmm. waves. Mm. So uh, technology has the uh, surprising ability to go much further than you typically think, and nature has the surprising Ability to uh, appear in Mm. places where we don't expect it. Mm. So I think we have to need an open mind. We have to throw the net wide. Of course, you know, we all have this canonical model that you build a big particle accelerator like the LHC and then results come in. But actually also in the past, some of these accelerators were more successful than others. And we just have to make sure that we don't put all our eggs in one basket. I think that's very important. (laughs) And these days we have interesting data coming from so many different sources, whether it's cosmological, astrophysical, lots of other kind of particle experiments are being done. As I said, it's somehow the whole field of condensed metaphysics is now equally relevant. And so this is all kind of tied together. And I think that just gives a very rich environment for people to develop new thoughts.
0: Finally, I asked Degrav to guess which among all the theoretical advances over the past 25 years would prove to be the most significant in the long term.
1: I think the kind of biggest discovery we have seen in the last few decades is that space and time, that for Einstein was the most fundamental thing in nature, where everything was built out, are not fundamental but can be replaced by something else. There's the famous uh, ADS-CFT equivalence. Uh, by Juan Maldacena, that shows that a theory of gravity, a string theory, in one space-time could be equivalent to a completely different system in less space-time dimensions, where there's no gravity or nothing, there's uh, kind of bits of information, and this ties in very neatly with uh, Stephen Hawking's theory about quantum black holes that actually can evaporate, and so all of this, I think, is pointing that beneath space and time the space and time that we just see
0: around us there is a deeper and more fundamental layer of reality so you really think that the days of uh, space and time a einstein are over do you i think they are and in some sense there is this kind of clash
1: between einstein and gravity and like Bohr and quantum mechanics and so the question is now who's gonna give? And we're not quite sure how that kind of clash of titans will play out. Mm. But I think uh, space and time are up for a discovery, a revolution, that's very similar how a 100 years ago matter was revolutionized, because then we understood that it, it consisted of elementary particles. And in some sense, the hunt is on in finding the atoms of space and time.
0: Most leading theoreticians share De Graf's view in my experience. The most profound insight of theoretical physics in the past 20-odd years has been the discovery that it seems to make no sense to regard gravity theory as fundamental, because its predictions are identical to those of what seemed like a completely different theory of subnuclear quarks. Who's to say which of the two theories is the more basic? Although this duality didn't lead directly to any predictions that experimenters could check, it led to a huge shakeup in modern thinking about our fundamental understanding of the universe. Not least that theorists have no choice but to rethink gravity, space and time.